Jeremiah 17, it says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond it is engraved. On the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars, while their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. O oh, my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage, which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger, which shall burn forever. The sermon began in chapter 16. It will continue all the way till the end of chapter 17. Jeremiah, remember, in chapter 16, has been given a series of permissions and prohibitions. He can't marry or have children or else they're going to die, it says in chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. He cannot mourn in chapter 16, verses 5 and 7. He cannot mingle in, in chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. And then he's given a series of permissions to explain to the people, to encourage the people, and to exhort the people. And part of that exhortation includes observing a proper Sabbath, we're going to discover later on in the chapter in verses 19 through 27. But the passage in this particular chapter is going to ask and answer one of the most fundamental questions that gets asked over and over again. Are people, are people basically good or are people basically evil? Are people basically wicked or are people basically just scarred a little bit? Most people believe that they're fundamentally decent, that they're solid, that they're respectable citizens. Some people live under the illusion that their behavior is good enough to make them acceptable to God. And the reason why they believe that is because they compare themselves not with the best person in the world, but usually with the worst person. Most people don't compare themselves to Mother Teresa. Most people compare themselves to Jeffrey Dahmer. They'll go, you know, when you, I watch Criminal Minds, and I'm, it's not like I'm a serial killer. I've never cut anybody's head off and kept it in the refrigerator. I'm basically a good person. And it is clear that some people appear to be good and decent and respectable. But we discover in the Bible that no human heart is completely free from the contamination of sin. No human heart is completely pure or completely free from sinful thoughts. In moments of honesty, we know that we are imperfect. We read the Bible in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where it says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We understand that the Bible says that God dwells in the glory of perfection and any person imperfect is unacceptable to him. For many people, they stop at that point and they say, if all people are unacceptable, then who can be saved? And the right answer is, apart from God, it's impossible. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, all things are possible. This is the reason God sent his son. To die on the cross for our sin. This is the reason Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. If we truly trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Bible teaches that God forgives our sin, imputes righteousness to us. And that what happens is the perfection of Jesus is seen by God in heaven as our own perfection. Paul talks about this and writes about it in Ephesians, the opening chapter, where he says we are chosen and we are adopted and we are accepted in the beloved. The pollution and imperfection of the human heart means that no one is acceptable to God. And this is why the scriptures constantly exhort us to turn from sin and turn to the Savior and to cry out for mercy and forgiveness, trusting God to forgive our imperfection and sin. 
And so people who genuinely trust Jesus follow him and then obey him. In this chapter, there's a series of seven sins. The serious sin of idol worship in verses 1 through 4. The sin of trusting the power of man instead of the power of God in verses 5 through 8. The sin of deceit in verses 9 and 10. The sin of wanting more and more and more and more of what you already have enough of in verse 11. The sin of forsaking the Lord in verses 12 and 13. The sin of persecuting God's prophets in verses 14 through 18. The sin of failing to worship God and rest in the Lord in verses 19 through 27. So we begin in verse 1 again. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of the altars. This particular passage means that the people of Judah and Jerusalem were so ingrained in their very nature that nothing would remove it. I don't know if you've seen a thing called a magic marker or a permanent marker. And a magic marker and a permanent marker by its very nature, means you can't erase it. And that's the point that Jeremiah begins with, that every molecule in the bodies of the people of Judah and Jerusalem have been thoroughly soaked, substantially stained. It's been engraved, if you will. It's, it's a permanent section of their soul. And so human beings have no resources to erase this kind of sin. They have no resources to remove this permanent stain. The picture is as if the mark has been made by a metal tool or a flint stone. And by the way, in, in, the, in the ancient culture, what they would do is they would sometimes take copper and wooden mallets or they would take flint and they would mark it against the stone and they would chisel it deep, deep, deep. Imagine... If someone told you, they gave you a steel wool pad and they said, we want you to go to the Dakotas and we want you to look at Mount Rushmore and we want you to erase the presidents on the side of the mountain and you have five minutes to do it. So you're laughing because of how ridiculous that is. They're chiseled out of solid rock. What's going to make those images disappear? Well, it's going to take way more than one person with a steel wool pad. The sins are deeply engraved. And it says on the horns of the altar. And by the way, the horns of the altar were those protrusions on the altar. Horns, by the way, speak of power. The horns were the place where you would strap the animal to the altar and you would kill the animal. And once the animal was dead, you would take the animal's blood and you would place it on the horns of the altar as a satisfaction or an atonement or a covering for sin. But here the idea is that the sins are so deeply engraved on the horns of the altar that no matter how much blood you poured on it, you couldn't make it go away. So what does that mean? Instead of forgiving their sins, a permanent record at the place of worship is engraved forever. In other words, this is what God is saying. If you go to the place where you think you are most likely to be accepted by God, you won't be accepted by God. That's what he's telling the people of Judah in Jerusalem. That their sins are so deep and so permanent that they're unforgettable. And then in verse 2 it says, While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green tree on the hill. When it says that, what he's doing is he's saying not only the parents are guilty of idolatry, but so are the children. The parents modeled idolatry to their children. And you've got to understand something that the people of Judah and Jerusalem, if you were to ask them, if you could go back in time and space and say, hi there, I'm from the future. Do you worship Yahweh? They would say, yeah. Do you believe in the God of Moses? Yeah. Would you consider yourself a child of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Yeah. What do you think about the Passover and the Bible? Hey, this is all a part of our culture and, and tradition. This is something we believe in. 
What about Ashtaroth and Azurah and Baal? Well, we're, we're, we're okay with them too. You see, they didn't just simply not believe in Jehovah, but they thought it was perfectly okay to believe in Jehovah and then believe in Baal and believe in Azura and believe in all of the Canaanite deities, and they imparted that information to their children as well. Which means that both adults and parents were involved in idolatry. You know, J. Vernon McGee used to say that there's one thing sadder, my friends, than going to hell. What's that? It's going to hell holding the hand of your own son and your own daughter. It's pretty depressing thinking you might go to hell, but it's way more depressing to think that you become the instrument, the guide, the leader, leading your own children to a place of permanent punishment. That's the point that Jeremiah is making. The adults and the children alike were steeped in the idolatry. The altars and the wooden poles, by the way, represented the fertility gods. And they were often engraved. Think of these. It's hard. I don't want you to think too hard. But the reality is these temples and graven images were placed on the high hills. They were large poles made out of wood. And they were often shaped into the images of the fertility gods. So they were engraved with graphic sexual images. And the priests and the priestess served, in effect, as sexual surrogates. They were prostitutes. In their wrong thinking, the people rationalized their sinful sexual behavior as bringing honor and glory and acceptance to the gods of fertility. It was their way of thinking they actually, they literally believed that Baal and Azra were delighted with sexual acts and that that guaranteed fertility both in their family, for their crops, and in their business. The people genuinely believed that engaging in sexual acts would guarantee abundant prop, crops and, and productive business. And so you can imagine, people thought, Okay, tell me what your religion is. Oh, well, we have sex in order to invite the fertility gods to bring fertility to uh, our crops and businesses. Hey, count me in. Hey, that sounds like a great kind of a church. But see, here's the point. The people turned to this activity because it fed their flesh and not their spirit. And it had become such an ingrained part of their life. And so in verse 3, it says, Oh, my mountain in the field, I will give us plunder, your wealth, all your treasures, and your high places of sin within all your borders. This is the borders of Judah and Jerusalem. The permeation of sin and the commitment to idolatry had brought the sad consequences that sin always brings. Judgment. The people practicing idolatry would lose God's mountain. And in this case, what is God's mountain? It's Mount Zion. It's the city of the great king. It's Jerusalem. And all of their wealth and all of their valuables. And see, that's part of the principle. The principle is rebellion and disobedience will, in effect, eventually create a mechanism where judgment will come. And the stuff that you valued and the stuff that you treasured will go away. And it says in verse 4, And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. That's Babylon. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. The heritage here is the land. It's Judah and Jerusalem. And some of you may forget how hard fought that heritage was. You'll remember the captivity in Egypt. You'll remember how Moses led them in the wilderness. You'll remember Joshua standing at the precipice of the Jordan River, being commanded by God to go into the land and remove the people who were there and occupy the land. And that this was the reward 
of honoring and obeying God. And now it's going to result in the loss of their inheritance. Idolatry would result in the loss of their inheritance. And in this particular instance, the heritage here is the promised land. Idolatry would result in not only the loss of the land, it would result in captivity and it would result in slavery. And by the way, that becomes a kind of a picture of what happens when we enter into willful, repeated, unrepentant sin. What we have, we lose. And what we used to be free from, we become slaves to. People who reject the God of the Bible, think about this, they don't necessarily reject all gods, do they? Most people who reject the God of the Bible embrace the gods of their own imagination and the gods that they embrace give them permission to ignore the Bible, explain and break the commandments of God. The, the, the God that they believe in isn't a holy God, a righteous God, a just God who insists on righteous living or facing eternal punishment and separation. That's not the God that they believe in. They, they begin to fabricate a God in their own brain who they go, hey, you know, the God that I believe in loves me unconditionally. Tell me what you mean by that. He doesn't care what I think and he doesn't care what I do. Really? Yeah, he doesn't care who I hurt. He doesn't care what lives I destroy or or how I ruin other people's lives or destroy relationships. Really? Yeah, I believe in a God who lets me drink drug and who, who sort of isn't bothered by all of that. Really? What else? Well, the God that I believe in doesn't expose my sin. And doesn't threaten me with judgment. Really. You see, you might think that the people that Jeremiah is speaking to are profoundly different from you and I. But has it been your experience that human beings by nature hate their sins being exposed or love their sins being exposed? What's been your experience? Oh, yeah, we really enjoy our, our, our sins being exposed. No, human beings seek religion. They love religion. But they don't love demanding religion. They don't love the kind of religion that restricts sinful thinking and sinful living. And because idolatry filled and permeated the nation, it filled and permeated their families. And their hearts and the sin aroused the anger of God. And once the burning anger of God was aroused, it would continue to burn forever. Which should cause you to ask a question. It's a hard theological question. With a very simple answer. Does God Hate, sin. What do you think the answer to that is? If you answered yes, you did good. Does God hate sin forever? What do you think the answer is? Yeah, that's the right answer. But it creates a terrible dilemma. And the terrible dilemma is if God hates sin, and if God hates sin forever, and if God hates my sin, and if God hates my sin forever, then how can I ever be cleansed? How can I ever be washed? How can I ever be clean? How can I ever be accepted by God? And guess what? That's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is the answer to that question. Guess what? You can be chosen, adopted, and accepted in Christ. God is going to send a person who's going to live the life that you could never live and die on a cross for your sin and rise from the dead. But most people don't want anything to do 
with Jesus. And they don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible. The God who hates sin and loves righteousness. The God whose anger burns against idols and idolatry. The God who punishes sin and then punishes that sin forever. But the word of God is clear that idolaters will face his righteous anger and condemnation. But then the Bible has this amazing thing that it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation means the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes committed. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes, Don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, that's sexual sin, idolaters, which is in our passage, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. A reviler, if you don't know what that means, is a person who parties hardies. Nor extortioners, if you don't know what an extortioner is, this is a person who cheats other people shall inherit the kingdom of God. And so he talks about the sin of idolatry. Then he talks about the sin of trusting the power of man instead of the power of God. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. You see, The human heart is far more likely to trust human beings. And by the way, when you don't trust God and you don't trust Jesus, does that mean you don't trust anybody? Have you ever met someone who says, I don't trust anybody? And then you ask them kind of a simple question. How about yourself? Do you trust yourself? No. Okay. You don't trust anybody and you don't trust yourself. So what do you do? Do you live in constant fear and do you live in constant isolation? You see, the human heart really will trust something. The people of Judah trusted human wisdom and they trusted human counsel and they trusted human reason and they trusted human power, even though they wouldn't necessarily admit it. That's exactly what they did. And the Lord says, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Why? Because you're placing your confidence in a circumstance that can't save you and can't forgive you. In verse 6 it says, For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. In other words, the image, I don't know if you've ever driven through the desert somewhere. I grew up. Near in the Mojave Desert, really. It was the, that stretch of desert between San Bernardino and Las Vegas, Nevada, where there is mile after mile of mile after mile of rocks and sand and dirt and cactus. And imagine you drive for 50 miles in the middle of nowhere is one lonely shrub blowing in the wind. Is that shrub aware of Niagara Falls? Does it know that there's a Colorado River or a Mississippi River? Here is the shrub in the middle of nowhere going. Parched and all alone. Dying in the middle of nowhere. But shall inhabit the parched place in a salt land. Salt was... Necessary for life, but in the end, if you live in a salt land, nothing grows. It's barren. And in verse 7, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. In other words, the person who trusts the Lord, they're given a series of wonderful promises. Four of them. Number one, they'll be blessed. Their hope in the Lord will be rewarded. Number two, they'll be nourished by God and firmly rooted in life like a tree planted by water. It's reminiscent of Psalm chapter one. As a matter of fact, if you uh, turn a couple of books back to about page 627. No, I don't know what page it is, but 
If you go to, to Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law, on the law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth fruit in the season, whose leaf will not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. But, and it says, but the ungodly are not that way. So the person who trusts in the Lord are blessed. Number two, they're nourished. Number three, they don't have to be afraid when the heat is on, when the temperature in life begins to rise, when the blazing trials attempt to scorch and burn you. Instead, you can be victorious, it says in verse 8. For their roots are deep and secure. And number four, they'll always produce fruit. What do I mean? They'll always produce fruit. Even in drought conditions. Even when the air is dry. And the sky is empty. And the clouds seem to provide no refreshment whatsoever how is that possible because you're a christian because you know and love the lord jesus the the christian places his or her trust in the lord and because you place your trust in the lord you withstand the trial and the test and the temptation and the hardship and the misfortunes and you experience peace and security and protection. You experience the fullness of life and you cultivate the assurances associated with living and walking and knowing Jesus and you're greatly blessed. That's the promise of God. Remember, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, housing, food, clothing. Those are the things that will be added to you in Matthew 6:33. In Luke 11:13, it says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to him that asks? That's the point. Lord, instead of an impure spirit, I need the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about the sin of deceit. Look in verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now Jeremiah gets to the heart of the matter. And what is the heart of the matter? The heart. The heart is deceitful in its conduct. That means in its relationship to spiritual things and its tendency towards evil and concerning the truth of its own nature. The heart is deceitful in its conduct and it is diseased in its character, utterly wicked. And let me explain to you what the heart is in the Hebrew way of thinking. It isn't that organ that pumps in your chest. It isn't that muscle that beats so many times per second. It's talking about the inward person. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it's talking about the seat, both of the mind and the will and the emotion and the conscience. The heart is deceitful in its conduct. It is diseased in its character. It's characterized as being utterly wicked, totally depraved. Universally wicked, unsearchably wicked, incurably wicked. Not like Dumb and Dumber. You remember in the movie Dumb and Dumber where the, the, the character that's played by whatever that guy's name is, he, he wants to date this girl and he goes, what are the chances of you going out with me? And she says, one in a million. And he goes, oh. Yeah, that's it's it's funny because it's so stupid. Do, do you understand those odds? Do you understand what one in a million means? 
What are the chances of the heart being truthful and pure? One in a million? One in a billion? One in six billion? If 14 billion people are born on the planet Earth, will there be one who will be pure? No. The heart deceives. The heart misleads. It twists. It arouses people to go in the wrong direction. And so often when people tell me things and I go, why are you leaving your wife? And why are you marrying your secretary? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why are you stealing money from your business? Why are you doing this? Well, I just felt in my heart that it was a good idea. Really? Yeah, you know, and I was told that that I should trust my heart. What? You never read Jeremiah seventeen nine? This is the deception that includes rationalizing sin. That's the plausible but untrue excuse of why we do what we do. We embrace the path of sin instead of righteousness, lawlessness instead of the commandments, immorality instead of purity. This is the deception that rationalizes sin, justifies sin, embraces unbelief and worry and fear, and people convince themselves. They convince themselves that they're justified in their wicked behavior. And you know how they convince themselves? Because God has let me down. You know, I prayed to him and he didn't answer my prayer. I went to church and nobody spoke to me. And I I fell in love and the person didn't return my love. People justify their wicked behavior because God has failed them. Their wife has failed them. Their children has failed them. Their government has failed them. The pleasure or the gain from forbidden behavior has let them down. Their own addictions have failed them. Most people, most people understand that they're responsible for their own thoughts and their own behavior, but they feel compelled to blame anyone. Including God. I'm angry with God. Really? That's a terrifying place to be in. Most people don't understand the depravity of the human heart. They look for that spark of goodness. They look for that spark of goodness that they can somehow fan into a flame of decency and purity. But it doesn't exist. When people are honest with themselves, they see that the earth is full of lawlessness and violence and immorality and greed and selfishness. But we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're basically honest and good and upright. You know what we do? We judge ourselves by our motives and we judge others by their behavior. Well, I know what I meant. But I saw what you did. But God searches our heart, it says. He searches our mind. So as God searches our heart and searches our mind, what does he discover? A cesspool. That is basically selfish and wicked He finds a heart that doesn't love God. He finds a heart that refuses to love their neighbor. He finds a heart that no amount of righteous deeds can make up for all of the miserable failures. Do you understand what that means? Can you imagine you get pulled over by a police officer and the officer says, you know why I pulled you over? And you say, well, because you suspect I'm here illegally. No, no, really. Do you know why I pulled you over? Because you ran that red light. Well, I'll stop twice at every single one in the future. Or, doesn't the thousand lights that I stopped at, doesn't that count for anything? Do you think if you argue with the officer, you know, ever since I was 16 years old, I always stopped at the stop sign. I stopped every time, day after day, month after month, week after week, year after year, and you're going to write me up for running this one? What do you think the officer's going to say? Uh, yeah. That's exactly what I'm going to do. By observing the law before 
and after, will that change the breaking of the law? No. The Bible says if you break one law, you've broken all of the laws. And look what it says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. I want to pause just for a moment. And I want you to read that to yourself again. I, the Lord, search my heart. Put your name in there. I test the mind. Pause for just a moment. God is searching your heart. He's investigating the inner recesses of all that you say and all that you do and all that you think and how you behave. Is he finding anything that he's not happy with? And then it says, look, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. There's a reason why he's searching the heart and there's a reason why he's testing the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Here's Dr. Jesus. Dr. Jesus gives the diagnosis. I, the Lord Jesus, search the heart. I test the mind. Again, the Hebrew word. It's the thoughts, the motives, the intentions, the emotions, the will. God searches the mind and the heart and then renders rewards. Look what it says. He gives to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Here's the deal. God judges your intent. God judges the content. And then God judges the consequences. And what are what is the intent? Have you ever done anything and you knew it was wrong? Have you ever done anything and it hurt someone? And guess what? Then you become the perfect candidate for a savior. Because God sends Jesus. He sends Jesus to die for our sins. He sends Jesus because our heart is hopeless and wicked and deceived. We have an incurable condition. And yet there is a cure, a remedy. Jesus is the remedy. We sing the song, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The cross is the remedy. The sacrifice of Jesus is the remedy. He's the satisfying solution. And by the way, there's no greater deception than this single thought that we can be accepted by God apart from Jesus Christ. There's nothing more wicked. There's nothing more insane. There's nothing more hellish than for a person to come to the conclusion. I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to take my chances with God based on everything that I've said and based on everything that I've done. Really? Are you really wanting to take that chance? And look, he goes on and he talks about the sin of wanting more when you already have enough. In verse 11, it says, as a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end, he'll be a fool. Okay. The human heart, we've already learned, is a cesspool. But what's in the cesspool? Don't let your mind go there. I'm going to give you two other things to think about. Greed and covetousness. You see... This is the image in verse 11, a covetous person. By the way, the word covet means to want more and more and more of what you already have enough of. So, the, so here's the image. The covetous person is like a bird that hatches eggs that it never laid. That's what the partridge does. The partridge finds a nest, didn't build the nest. The heart partridge finds the egg, didn't lay those eggs. Then the partridge sits on the egg and pretends like the egg belongs to the partridge. By the way, when the eggs hatch, do the birds go, Mom, Mom, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's a point where the young bird instinctively realizes, Hey, wait a minute. 
you're not my mom. And then they desert the foster mother. This is the picture of people who obtain or secure wealth unjustly. This, that's the point that's being made in the passage. Their wealth will desert them. Their wealth will wither. It'll be taken away. In the days of Jeremiah, the people were greedy and covetous. and They, they lied. They cheated. They stole. In other words, they increased their wealth by taking advantage of people. Some exploited their neighbors. Some took advantage of the poor. Shameful judges took bribes. Politicians and lawyers ruled to their own financial advantage. A spirit of greed filled the hearts of almost everyone. Does this sound familiar to you? The poor hated the rich and the rich despised the poor. In covetousness, what is usually wanted is the poor want wealth and the wealthy want more wealth. Someone came on The Tonight Show, a very wealthy man, and uh, this was before Jay Leno. I think it was, who was the guy before Jay Leno? You guys know. Whoever he is, he said, you know, how much more money do you need? And And the guy replied, just a little more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And so the wealthy wanted money and everything that money could buy. But the Lord was saying, you need to understand something. A judgment is coming and the wealth of the greedy and the wealth of the covetous will be taken away and they're going to be proved to be fools. It's like those people like Scrooge McDuck on the cartoons. He's swimming in this ocean of gold. But he's not going to be able to take it with him. And then the sin of forsaking the Lord. Look at verse 12. It says a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they've forsaken the Lord the fountain of living waters. When it says a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Here's the idea. The only hope for the people of God was the throne of God. What was the throne of God? The throne of God was the place where God ruled and reigned. The throne of God represented the presence of God. And by the way, in the temple where Jeremiah is near, inside the Holy of Holies, there is the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant, there is a thing called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is the place where the blood is sprinkled. Do you realize that Jesus' throne began as a cross? The place where he sat was a place where he was nailed. And he shed his blood. And then the blood was sprinkled on the throne and a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. In other words, the throne was the place where God's presence could deliver the people from the evil power and corruption and wickedness in the world. And so what's the point that's being made? Where can you be delivered from all of the painful things that oppress and pollute your heart. It's the presence of God, the presence of God, when you go into the presence of God. And so it says, oh, Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Now, I want you to just think this through for just a moment. If the presence of God offers a remedy for the sinful problem in your life, what happens if you decide to forsake the presence of God? Hey, there's hope in the presence of God. I don't want the presence of God. There's hope in the Bible. I don't want the Bible. There's hope in the sacrifice of Jesus. I don't want the sacrifice of Jesus. But all who forsake you will be ashamed. So the people were guilty of forsaking the Lord. Look what it says. 
the fountain of living water. Do you remember before the, the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter comes up to Jesus and says, hey, you know, the sheep is going to the, the, the shepherd is going to be smitten and the sheep are going to scatter. And Peter goes, I'm not leaving you. Peter says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And then he folds like a cheap suit. We're like that. Our heart says, I'll stay, I'll fight, I'll die. And then we're consumed by fear and we're overcome with a sense of self-preservation. And all of a sudden we make a run for it. And all who forsake the Lord will experience the bitter tragedy of shame. Their names, it says, will be written in the dust of the earth. Do you understand what that means? Their names are written in the dust of the earth. It means that they're doomed to die. It's an idiomatic expression. It would be like saying, I'm going to take you to a graveyard and we're going to look at the gravestones. And as we read the gravestones, what's typically on a gravestone? What's engraved on a gravestone? A name and usually a date of birth. And the day they died, sometimes they put a clever saying on there like, I told you I was sick. Boy, you were right. You were right. The Bible says, He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not on the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides or dwells on him in John 3.36. So when it says rejecting the only fountain of living water, here's the idea. No water, no life. No Jesus, no life. And then we see in verse 14, look what it says. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me. And I shall be saved, for you are my praise. You know, in, in, the, in the original language, the expression heal me is reflexive. It's, it's a Hebrew word. You probably heard the word rapha, the Lord who heals. This is rapha, heal me. The idea being, Lord, if you heal me, I'll really be healed. And when it says save me. It's the Hebrew word, Hosea. It's the root word, Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus, remember, his name is Yeshua, the Lord who saves, or Yeshua, save me. The implication in the Hebrew language is, If you save me, I'll really be saved. Jeremiah saying, if you heal me, I'll really be healed. If you save me, I'll really be saved. For you're my praise. He's crying for healing and deliverance. And in verse 15, look what it says. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. You may not understand what you're reading, but Jeremiah is crying because of the sarcastic mocking and persecution. They're ridiculing God's word. They're ridiculing God's prophet. Jeremiah is saying, indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Do you understand what they're saying? Jeremiah has been prophesying one year, five years, ten years, fifteen years. 20 years, 25 years, judgment's coming. Repent and turn from your sin. Judgment's coming. Oh, yeah, Jeremiah. Uh, Chapter 1, judgment is coming. Repent. Chapter 2, judgment's coming. Repent. Chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Judgment is coming. Repent and turn. Judgment is coming. Repent and return. (laughs) Hey, guess what? We're sick of this message, Jeremiah. We've had it. 
You keep saying, repent of your sin because judgment's coming. But guess what? I don't see any judgment. Where's the judgment? Really, what you are, Jeremiah, is you're a false prophet. If, if the judgment was really coming, it would already be here. And sometimes we think exactly that same way. Well, if God's really angry with my sin and my disobedience, then um, he, he's going to let me know, right? In verse 16, it says, as for me, I, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Here's Jeremiah saying, I've been a faithful shepherd of the Lord. I've refused to run away from the ministry that you gave me. You gave me this ministry. I didn't fold under the pressure when the ridicule and the mocking and the persecution came. I said, Okay, I'll continue in the ministry. I'll continue delivering the same message, even though everybody hates me. And then in verse 17, he says, do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. In other words, God is Jeremiah's only hope. God is Jeremiah's only refuge. He's the only source of comfort and joy. In verse 18, it says, let them be ashamed to persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom. Bring it on, Lord. Fire, brimstone, let it hail. Fire from heaven. Just like James and John, remember when they're walking through the village and they say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and smoke them like a cheap cigar? And Jesus says, you have zero idea of what you're talking. You have no idea what you're talking about. Jeremiah's praying. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. What? Single destruction isn't good enough? Double destruction? Let me help you understand what he's saying. He's praying for the vindication of God's word. But he's also praying for the vindication of God's prophet. Lord, you said, repent or else the judgment's coming. I repeated the message. Now they're mocking you and they're mocking me. He prays that the persecutors will be shamed. He prays that he won't be terrified. He prays that his persecutors will face God on the day of judgment. Do you understand what he's praying? He's praying the same thing that you might pray. The Bible. The, here, oh, here's Mr. Bible boy. Oh, welcome Bible man. Welcome Bible woman. Oh, here you are with the Bible. Oh, there you are opening the Bible. Oh, there you, there you are saying what the Bible says about all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. And Jesus is the satisfying solution. And I don't know that I believe that. But you keep repeating it over and over and over again, Jeremiah says, I've been a faithful servant. He points out his own faithfulness. He prays for the vindication. Year after year, he's been faithful. Year after year, he's called the people to repent or face God's judgment. Year after year, the judgment hasn't come. Year after year, the people Grow in intensity, mocking, rejection, and resistance because everything seems to go on like it's always going on. Oh, you know, in 1973, they said that the end of the world was going to come. Oh, in 1978, they said that the end of the world was going to come. Oh, 1982. Yeah, 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in, in 88. And then you get crazy Harold Camping going, oh, yes, um, May 21st, Jesus is coming. Now, what's the next date? Next week, oh yeah, it's October 21st. That's the next due date for Jesus' coming. Here's what you can guess. When stupid people like him make the prediction, it ruins it for all of us. Because remember the Bible says, he comes at a day that you know not. The critics assume Jeremiah heard a wrong message. 
that Jeremiah was just trying to have a ministry, but that, that it couldn't possibly be true. And so Jeremiah prays that God will bring judgment on the people, but save him in the day of disaster. And then he asks God to bring double destruction on the people who are mocking him, who are ridiculing him because he's facing persecution and discrimination and possibly even abuse. Just like the New Testament says, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. The unbeliever will persecute, discriminate, and abuse. Remember, the unbeliever doesn't welcome God's commands. And, and, and when, when the unbeliever sees the commandments of God, he says, take them down. Take them out of the school. Take them out of the court. Take them away. The unbeliever says, God's demand for righteousness and purity, not true. Most people want to indulge their flesh. They want to indulge themselves. And they want more and more. They want more power. They want more recognition. Even if that power and even if that recognition harms the people. Because guess what? They don't care about the people. And so, the seventh thing, the sin of failing to worship and rest. In verse 19, it says, Thus says the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, by which the kings of Judah come in and out, by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem. There are several gates. If you've ever seen a map of Jerusalem, it, there's a city and it was surrounded by walls and each of those walls had a gate. And so Jeremiah is instructed to go to those places of access and egress as people are coming into the city of Jerusalem. They're coming to the Temple Mount. They're coming to worship. He said, go to the places where the people in authority come in and out in verse 20 and say to them, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord. I want to warn you, take heed to yourselves. That means I want to warn you and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Early on, during the time of Moses, the Lord gave a prohibition. Keep the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Worship God. Rest. But over the years, like the rest of the commandments, it became something to ignore. Well, you know, every day is exactly the same. If I don't work on the Sabbath, then things won't get done. In other words, here's what happened. People began to trust in their own work and they, they would not worship. In other words, worship and rest wasn't an important part of who they were. And so he says in verse 22, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hollow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. So here's the issue. Fathers, did they honor the Sabbath day? No, they broke the Sabbath day. And it became worse and worse and worse. Verse 23, but they did not obey nor incline their ear but made their necks stiff that they might not hear or receive instruction. In other, words, the, in other words, you won't be the first generation to hear the prohibition and then ignore the prohibition. And verse 24 says, And it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hollow the Sabbath day to do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses. They and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall remain forever. Here's, here's the idea. If you will obey God, God will keep his promise. God promised David that his progeny would sit on the throne forever. 
Verse 26, and they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, which is just to the south, and from the lowland, from the mountain, from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices and grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. The idea being people begin to say, hey, you know what? It's ridiculous to disobey God. Let's start obeying God. Then verse 27, but if you will not Heed me to hollow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be be quenched. In other words, here's what he's saying. In your way of thinking, worship and rest are optional. You know, I would come to church, but I've got way too much to do. I would come to church, but my kid has a game. I would come to church, but there's always a reason why worship and rest get put on the back burner. Gets moved down the priority list. This was the Lord's commandment to Jeremiah's generation. It had been the the commandment in every generation. The Sabbath observance ran into two extremes. Sabbath observance that undermined the nature and character of God and Sabbath non-observance that neglected rest and worship. And the people refused to listen to God's command. They were stubborn and stiff-necked. And even when God disciplined through, through hardship and misfortune and oppression by other nations, they refused to turn. They refused to faithfully worship. Here's what they basically said. Worship and rest are not a priority. And the Lord said, then you will be judged. And that's exactly what would happen. The gates would be burned. The wall would be torn down. The temple would be taken. And the consequences would come. By the way, the people who faithfully worshipped the Lord and kept the Sabbath would receive peace and security. This is the promise. It would ensure a king on David's throne ruling over the nation. People who faithfully worshipped the Lord would prosper, it says in verse 25. Kings, rulers, people would be blessed. People who faithfully worshipped the Lord would dwell in the presence of God himself, it says in verse 26. The Lord promised the people of Judah and Jerusalem... Guess what? If you'll do this, I'll give you a temple. I'll provide for you a permanent temple. Do you understand what's happening in the text? The temple becomes a picture of the presence of God. And now the temple is gone. And in their way of thinking, the presence of God is gone. The temple is destroyed. The people will come back 70 years later. They will rebuild the temple. And then Jesus will show up. The presence of God in reality will show up on the planet Earth. Do you remember what Jesus will say even during his own earthly ministry? Tear this temple down and in three days I will raise it up. Which temple was he talking about? Was he talking about Herod's temple or was he talking about the temple of his own body? We know now that it was the temple of his own body. Kill me three days. I'll come back to life. Here's the point. A resurrected Jesus provides presence, worship, rest. You know, a lot of people ask me almost on a daily basis, what's the Sabbath day? And I say, you know, the Sabbath day has never changed. It's always been from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. Well, then what day should a Christian worship? Well, the Bible simply says that the Christian doesn't have a worship day. He has a worship savior. We don't have a Sabbath day. We have a Sabbath God. In other words, we find our rest in Christ. Our rest and our worship 
is in Jesus. By the way, can you worship Jesus on Wednesday night? On Friday night? On Saturday night? On Sunday morning? Paul would write, One person esteems one day above another, and some men esteem all days the same. Let each be convinced in his own mind. The writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a worship day, but we have a worship God and we find our satisfying rest in him forever. So, the warning, rest and worship aren't important. God's judgment would fall on all the disobedient and they would be destroyed and they would be condemned with an unquenchable fire. That's eternal condemnation. The tragic doom of everyone who fails to make worship and rest a priority. Is he talking about going to church on Saturday or Sunday? No. He's talking about worship and rest in the true presence of the true and living God. And that's in Jesus. You know what? How do you avoid eternal condemnation? How do you avoid the tragic doom? You worship the Lord. You find rest in Him. He becomes the satisfying solution. In Jesus, guess what? You have the presence of David's seed forever. And a king who will remain a king. And I believe that one day he will occupy the throne of his father David. Not just the mercy seat in the temple, but a real throne. In a real Jerusalem. In a real future. Sermon number seven, over with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Jeremiah. Lord, what an opportunity for us to think carefully and biblically about our Savior, about Jesus. Lord, we understand that there's something so wrong and so terrible that it can't be solved or satisfied there's something as superficial as religion. It's going to require a sacrifice. And it's going to require a savior. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we aren't just simply instructed to join a church or embrace a belief system. That we have this wonderful opportunity to turn from our sin and receive a savior who loves us, who washes us, who cleanses us, who draws us, who forgives us, who chooses us and accepts us and reconciles us so that our hearts can be clean and pure and that we can see God because we can't see anything else. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.